1: Well, good morning. Happy Thursday, folks. Happy Budget Day. Rob Breckenridge with you here on 630 Chad, Yes, the Alberta budget uh, is going to come down a little over six hours from now. I think around 315 is when the budget's going to be tabled in the Alberta legislature. Just to let you know, tomorrow we are going to hear from, among others, Alberta's finance minister, Travis Taves, uh, to talk about the budget. Uh, but that'll, I think, certainly loom large over some of the conversation here this morning. We got a lot to get to. Our number, of course, uh, 780. Zero four nine six zero zero six three. So before we go any further, though, I want to get uh, right to our first guest, and the conversation I suppose may touch on the budget because certainly uh, that's going to impact education in Alberta going forward. And uh, someone who's uh, spent a, a long time uh, trying to improve education in Alberta. In Edmonton in particular is Michael Jantz. He has uh, decided that he is not going to seek a fourth term on the Edmonton Public School Board after 11 years as a trustee. So joining us to talk about that decision and some other issues, very pleased to welcome to the program the aforementioned Michael Jans. Michael, thanks for making some time
2: for us here this morning. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure.
1: Well, and we appreciate you making some time for us. So let's start with the decision first of all. Obviously, look, you've been, as mentioned, a trustee for uh, 11 years now. And yeah, I almost get my diploma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, I guess so. Uh, so talk about the, the decision and, and kind of what you were weighing and how, how you reached the decision you did.
2: Yeah, um, first of all, I'm, I, there, are, there are currently trustees serving who have been elected since the 80s in Alberta, and I never wanted to be one of those people. I I came in 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 uh, 2010, uh, previously to being a trustee. I had researched for the public school trustees around Alberta. And I had also done, uh, uh, six years of advocacy at post-secondary as a student union president. And so I had been involved in post-secondary education advocacy, and then I pivoted to K to 12. And it's something that's very close to my heart. And as I said, on uh, my post on michaeljance.ca, I will continue to be fighting the good fight and volunteering. Um, but I've done three terms, it's 11 years. And, uh, um, yeah, I think it's important to have, uh, fresh voices and fresh perspectives and and pass the torch so uh it's a really exciting time to be involved and what i'm trying to do is encourage people to run maybe not in 2021 maybe in 2025 maybe in 2029 i want to ensure we can have a generation of robust municipal leaders take over in alberta not just at school board but at, in, in many stations at school councils at, at city councils at all over i think local government matters more than ever and i think you're seeing that municipalities are kind of rising up and that's 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 really exciting school boards as well i think we all benefit from competitive democracy it's interesting because
1: you're right, and it, and it yeah. does matter. Um, and but there seems to be a disconnect at times. I think people will 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 agree with that statement, but oftentimes, you know, we, we don't always vote even, or we don't pay close attention. I mean, what percentage of Albertans could name their their school board trustees? I'm I'm not sure. So, why do you think there is that
2: disconnect? Well, I think I think to be honest, it's it's part of it's about power. Mayor and city council can raise your taxes. School boards, since 1994, cannot. So when it's not going to impact your wallet. People care less. That's that's just part of it, that when sure. school boards used to be able to levy taxes to build schools, you 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 bet they paid attention. But now the decision to hire teachers or not comes from the legislature today at the provincial budget. The decision whether to build schools or not, the decisions whether to charge for bus fees or anything else, is so much of the dollars and cents and the raw power of education comes from the legislature. And it's enormous. It's the second largest expenditure next to health care.
1: So, where do trustees have a role? Because I think you're right. Part of it is the perception. Look, I mean, it's the province that controls education in Alberta. Alberta Ed, the minister, the premier, the cabinet, the government—they make the decisions on education in Alberta. What do you see, though, as, as the critical role of, of, of boards and of trustees?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I said, uh, I said on my post, there's three three thoughts I have. Like, first of all, it's it's leadership is about the action you take. It's about the causes you stand for. It's about the things you chase. Secondly, we, you know, we may not have that hard budget power. Uh, we can allocate budget within within our own district, but uh, we can't really fight for, for or we can't really uh, receive more or choose to levy taxes, etc. We kind of have to spend what we're given. So, but we do have an enormous amount of influence. And so whether it's like when I was... Over the last 11 years, we have completely changed the conversation in education. We've seen the replacement model school come in. We've seen the GSA conversation start. That started because my school board, my colleague, uh, we voted to do that when Christopher Spencer brought that forward in uh, 2011. Can you imagine a school today without GSAs? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're Like right we now. have That's an enormous like we're on the we're on the front line of, of 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 the culture war of the pandemic recovery of the climate emergency education and our school systems are uh, are, are enormously important. And so I'm just really trying to get that message out there.
1: Let's talk about the uh, financial pressure schools and school boards are dealing with right now. I think it was a couple of months ago, the report came back, Edmonton Public Schools looking at you know, around almost $70 million in COVID costs on, on top of everything else. Uh, how, how acute are these, these financial pressures resulting from the pandemic on schools?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I would need to get you the most up-to-date numbers. But part of the hard thing with COVID is we don't know what we don't even know. Like there's costs that may appear immediately like hand sanitizer, but then there may be other costs like uh, a child entering school next year who needs extra reading recovery or needs extra support. So like the what we call the learning loss, Uh, is enormous and we're going to have to account for that. What's our dropout rate going to be 10 years from now compared to now because of COVID? There's some of these downstream costs that are a little bit intangible at the moment, but we're going to need to look at. And that's part of the problem here is that we are, we are looking at a, a, like COVID has absolutely transformed government in Canada and society in Canada. Like who would have thought that we could have something like the CERB benefit? Who would have thought that we could go from classroom learning to virtual learning in a span of like a month right so to what extent do we continue virtual learning to what extent does edmonton public become a hub school for uh, other places in canada or even the world like there's so many transformative conversations right now that we could have and i think we need to have so we'll get the budget coming down later on this
1: afternoon, and uh, everyone's watching for all kinds of different reasons. But, I mean, what would you like to see? What are you anticipating that we'll see as it pertains to, to education funding?
2: Well, I, I mean, I <laughs> I have a bunch of things. I mean, personally, it just incenses me that we're still paying for a war room uh, and we're not paying for our classrooms. Uh, it bothers me that we cut almost $230 million from the most vulnerable children who are in pre-kindergarten, the children who have... Uh, um, some of the highest needs. We had this, this pre-kindergarten intervention program to help them. Some of the children was who were literally learning to to walk and talk. Some of them who who needed the most help. Um, the government cut that. So, to me, I'm wondering, like, are we going to be short term? and make cuts that are going to have enormous long-term costs because we saw at the school board that by not paying for those children now they're going to require much more expensive intervention interventions later as they enter elementary so i think i think it's it's a uh, like most budgets it's a question of me or we are we going to be making decisions for individuals or are we going to be making decisions that are good for the community and good for society um, what's the next hundred years going to be for education? Like we know that with, with rocky uh, forecast for our, our, uh, our oil and gas industry and, and with more and more, global corporate car manufacturers and leaders moving towards electric vehicles? What's going to be the next feature for Alberta in terms of de- diversification? What are we preparing the kids in junior high for or elementary for today? What, what is the world of work going to look like for them? We know what the last 50 years were for Alberta, but what are the next 50 years and what is the education systems role in that? And so uh, these are major questions that are yesterday's the provincial budget, but they, they, like how are we going to be making these transitions and these decisions and it's uh it's a it's a really really exciting time to be involved and then layer on top of this we still are in the climate emergency let's not forget and uh, we're still in the pandemic and we still ha- need to have some serious conversations about doing justice for um our indigenous community uh sorry not our indigenous our, our neighbors uh, the indigenous uh, <laughs> our, the the indigenous people of of canada uh and and uh um, and the BIPOC community as well too. So, like, there are stu- there are students in the school system who are doing half as well as others. Why is that? And let's make sure we can fix that. So it's it's uh, it's breaking through the legacy of racism and colonialism, and even little things like like the, the the programming that's been in all of us for for a generation or more that that we need to we need to deal with. And these are real serious conversations. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I mean, it speaks to the importance of the role itself, as you alluded to. And uh, I, I guess, you know, part of the plan going forward for you in the short term, looking ahead to the, uh, the fall elections, you're going to be putting on some some workshops. So, you know, helping people get informed about what's involved in running, what's involved in being a trustee and, and then even taking that a step further and some some practical workshops. Tell us a bit more about that.
2: Yeah, so last night I hosted a town hall about um, anti-racism education. It was great. We had, uh, um, about 50 people register and some of, from all different parts of Alberta. If you visit michaeljans.ca, I have a kind of a trustee training camp sign up and I'm going to be providing information. And the goal is not just for public trustee, but for Catholic trustee, francophone trustee, anyone involved in local government. And I'm going to be organizing a series of different people who I've met through my journey who have advice and wisdom and expertise and hopefully just trying and get some of these conversations out there like things i didn't know about before i ran 11 years ago that would have been helpful and my goal is not just to create sort of a a competitive race in 2021 i want to make sure that it's it's a multi multi multi-year system of of competitive local government that we have people who are excited and engaged in uh not just school boards but school councils and education leadership throughout society like it's uh it's really really important
1: very interesting. Michael Jans, Dotsie, again, is the website. Michael, thanks so much for making some time for us here this morning, and all the best with uh, whatever comes next for you. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. There you go. That is, uh, well, outgoing uh, Edmonton Public School Board trustee Michael Jans deciding not to uh, go for a fourth term. Certainly been one of the more visible and outspoken uh, members uh, of the Edmonton Public School Boards. And uh, I guess we'll see who fills those shoes. But as he says, I mean, even though he's moving on, still wants to ensure that the board has an impact. So encouraging people to run, helping them, you know, navigate to all of that. You know, because uh, these trustees can and do have a voice, even though we, we tend to think that, look, the province makes the final decision, which is largely true. There's still a role for, for uh, school board trustees. OK, a lot to get to uh, on the program on this Thursday morning. Seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three is our number. Rob Breckenridge with you. You are listening to 630 Chad. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Busy day today. Uh, of course, the uh, Edmonton Oilers back in action tonight. They scored uh, four goals in a row to make it four wins in a row. Going for five in a row again tonight uh, against the Canucks part of the back-to-back uh, series in Vancouver. And I wonder, you know, even coming out of this season, if that's something the NHL is going to look at doing more of to kind of cut down on on the travel burden for teams. Anyway, 8 o'clock start once again, 6 o'clock uh, face-off show uh, as the Oilers and uh, Canucks tangle uh, once again this evening. It is also budget day, uh, just under six hours uh, from now. That uh, budget is going to be tabled in the Alberta legislature. We're going to hear from the finance minister uh, on the program tomorrow. We'll also be watching to see... Uh, uh, the, the government's uh, first uh, orders of business pertaining to new legislation in this session of the legislature looks as though the province is poised to finally introduce legislation on recall, voter recall, and uh, on citizens' initiative. Uh, the idea that uh, if enough people sign on to a petition, a certain issue could be put to a vote in a referendum. Those are both campaign promises from the UCP. Looks as though they're set to move on those, perhaps, uh, with the Bill 1, Bill 2, Bill 3. You know, some of the first pieces of legislation we're going to see in the spring sitting. So something else to keep an eye on uh, through the day and into tomorrow. Coming up after 9.30 here, we're going to uh, look back on what happened yesterday with regard to the vaccine rollout. And what kind of a spin are we putting on it here this morning? Apparently 2,000 seniors got a first dose yesterday. According to Alberta Health Services, more than 72,000 seniors, 75 and older, have made appointments to be vaccinated. Okay, that's that sounds good. But, of course, yesterday, also, we had all kinds of problems with people trying to get onto the website, get through to 811, book an appointment, and there was a lot of frustration. So, if we ironed out those issues, maybe, hopefully. One of the, the weird aspects to what, what happened yesterday was, uh, with regard to the AHS website itself, what seemed like a coding problem that was preventing people from getting through. We're going to speak with someone uh, coming up after 9:30 who was able to diagnose that problem and post on social media a workaround. So, yeah, you you almost had to be kind of a uh, an amateur coder to to get through this problem. So we'll talk about that coming up after 9:30. And what it tells us, what does this all tell us about how ready we are to ramp up vaccines? Hopefully, we'll learn some lessons from this because, you know, things are just going to get bigger in terms of the scale of this as we go forward. So if we're having trouble with just this particular age group, what happens when we expand it and expand it again and expand it again? So we'll get into all of that coming up after 9.30. Speaking of vaccines, we're already seeing some pretty encouraging data with regard to long-term care centers and the impact that vaccination is having. So at what point do we start to have that conversation around lifting restrictions within long-term care settings? Something we've got to be careful with, obviously, but, you know, let's let's acknowledge the good news. So we'll get to that coming up after 10 o'clock. Plenty more to get to along the way. My name is Rob Breckenridge. This is 6.30 Chat. Good morning. Welcome aboard along the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Thursday morning, this budget day. A lot of ground to cover on the program today. Around 3.15 this afternoon, by the way, is when that uh, provincial budget is going to come down. Uh, We are going to be speaking tomorrow morning with Finance Minister Travis Taves, among others, uh, to break down what's in the budget. But uh, you'll uh, find out for sure at 3.15 or so uh, this afternoon. So we'll have an opportunity today, I think, to talk a bit about uh, that budget, what you're looking for, what you're hoping to see or hoping not to see. So we'll uh, have some time for that conversation. We're certainly going to talk vaccines this morning. Uh, Yesterday, the portal was opened for those 75 and older to book a vaccine appointment. Now, according to Alberta Health, over 70,000 individuals have done so. In fact, 2,000 got their first dose yesterday. So on the surface, that that sounds okay, but of course, there were a a lot of problems with the uh, rollout yesterday, and a lot of individuals having difficulty getting through the website, getting through at 811, and uh, a lot of frustration resulting from that. So we'll talk a bit more about what exactly happened. Have they figured out the problem? Uh, Certainly things are a little different on the website this morning. So we'll, uh, we'll get into that coming up uh, today. We're going to talk more about the impact uh, of vaccinations. And uh, already, now, and look, Alberta's uh, focus initially was on long-term care settings. And at least within those settings, we're starting to see some payoffs. The numbers are looking pretty good in terms of cases and outbreaks, et cetera. Maybe we're even to the point where we can start having a conversation about easing some of the restrictions that are in place in long-term care. Because, yes, as much as we've tried to protect those settings, those restrictions have resulted in in a lot of isolation for residents. So if we've got them protected, can we start to to rethink that approach? So we'll talk about that coming up after 10 o'clock. Later on today, uh, we're also going to talk about the uh, federal travel restrictions uh, that are in place and the uh, requirement that those returning go to a hotel So what does this mean for the hotels themselves? Which hotels are a part of this? Is this something they wanted to be a part of? I mean, business is business, I guess. But there are all kinds of uh, logistical issues in in offering this kind of a service. So we'll talk about that later on this afternoon. Also, the court fight around Bill C-69, the federal legislation that created the new Impact Assessment Act, Now, a lot of folks in Alberta, including those in in government in Alberta, not big fans of that legislation. So I think reasonable people can disagree over whether it's a good policy or not. But on the question of whether it is constitutional or not, that's something that uh, the Alberta Court of Appeal is being asked. And we're going to hear from uh, a law professor who has uh, presented some arguments in this case. And we'll look at where there are legal arguments here. Not the policy arguments, but the legal arguments. Does Bill C-69, this legislation, intrude on provincial jurisdiction with regards to natural resources or the environment? Certainly the fads have some say in those matters, but where's the line? So we'll get to that coming up uh, later on today. A bunch of other stuff we'll get to along the way. Your calls as well. Uh, In Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Let me play, first of all, uh, a couple of clips from uh, Alberta Health Minister Tyler Shandro from yesterday afternoon. Now, they held a press conference to update Alberta's vaccination plans. We're going to be involving pharmacies, which I think makes a lot of sense. let me start with clip number one here. And uh, the health minister was uh, asked about some of the problems that the AHS uh, booking system was uh, dealing with yesterday as there was a real rush for for folks, 75 and up, to get in, get those appointments booked, people running into problems. So clip number one here, Health Minister Tyler Shandro uh, talking about
3: these problems. So to everybody who was disappointed this morning, I want to say um, that I'm with you. Uh, AHS is uh, fixing the problems with the booking system as fast as they can, and they'll catch up quickly. The system can now handle about 5,000 bookings per hour. Uh, AHS has added network capacity. They've added staff to HealthLink. They are working directly with TELUS to make sure that any intermittent, busy signal uh, some TELUS subscribers were dealing with this morning is no longer a problem. And these shots are are going to take a few weeks. Uh, We won't get uh, to everybody right on the the very first day, but we will get to all of you. And so I want to emphasize the shots are happening. The delays in getting through to the, the booking system will not slow down the actual vaccinations. They are going ahead as planned. And as I said, uh, last time I, I spoke to, uh, to AHS, um, 25,000 eligible seniors had successfully booked appointments. And the first shots booked this morning, as I said, are getting done this afternoon. So that was
1: uh, the health minister yesterday afternoon. The latest numbers we got this morning from Alberta Health Services, more than 72,000 Albertans have made appointments. They also say the online booking tool has stabilized since launch on Wednesday morning. We very much appreciate everyone's patience and we understand the frustration. So then the numbers are picking up. And as the health minister said, you know, the first shots, we even had some appointments yesterday afternoon, about 2000 or so. So that's encouraging. You know, I think in the grand scheme of things, those those numbers aren't bad. And it's also worth noting that Alberta's a little bit ahead of the other provinces in getting these kinds of appointments booked. Ontario's not going to start uh, taking appointments until March 15th. And even then, they're starting with uh, an even older age category for those initial appointments. So, yeah, okay, I mean, you know, you, you can look at it in that sense, a glass half full kind of perspective, right? On the other hand, though, I think the concern here is what are we going to do when the, the next stage of the rollout is even bigger and, and the next one after that is even bigger? Does that mean that the problems are going to be even bigger? Or are we learning some lessons here on how to deal with this? right? So th- that's where there's some fair criticism here. The Alberta government chose that date, that time, that process very deliberately. We know how many Albertans age 75 and older there are. So we knew when we were opening this up, we knew what kind of demand to expect, and yet we still weren't ready. So that, that's my concern is, well, if we misjudge that, what does that foretell in, in the, um, the next phases of all of this? So hopefully some lessons learned here. And like I say, it sounds as though they, they've dealt with some of these issues and some changes were made to the website. And we'll get to that uh, in a bit here as well. Let me just uh, play one more from, uh, from the health minister, uh, because as I mentioned, and, and look, credit where credit is due. I think, you know, when, when getting the vaccine out to people, we got to find uh, creative ways uh, of being efficient with this. And so enlisting pharmacies makes a lot of sense. And that was part of the announcement yesterday from, from the health minister. Uh, so I want to play uh, clip number two. So this is the health minister talking about the vaccine, the pharmacy plan. And how the, uh, the rollout is going to expand as the supply continues
3: to increase this is clip number two. As soon as we have the supply and the processes in place, we plan to expand the pharmacy program to help us get doses in the arms of every Albertan who wants to get vaccinated when they are eligible. And as more vaccine arrives, participating pharmacies and many other communities will begin to offer the vaccine as well. We are ready and we are able to keep expanding our approach. And with the support of the Alberta Medical Association, the the AMA, we're working on plans to expand the rollout to community physicians as well. And we're also working on um, plans to to develop large fast flow immunization clinics, as I've uh, referred to them in the past, rapid flow through clinics that can be stood up at later stages. The only limit that we have is the number of vaccines available to us. And that number, and as that number expands, our approach will keep pace.
1: Voice in on the conversation. Because for a lot of people yesterday, they, they very quickly learned how to be almost like coders. There was a very specific kind of website issue, and there was a workaround for it. So it wasn't just about knowing what website to go to, knowing how to take the various steps. For some people, uh, they had success when they did a little bit of uh, copy and pasting, a little bit of coding. So there was a workaround that helped a lot of people, but it's um, a little disconcerting that there was that kind of a glitch – in, in a website like this, and I mean, you don't want these, these websites to be vulnerable in that sense to, to any kind of troublemakers. But uh, for folks who were trying to get through and, and get an appointment booked, this turned out to be a, a very helpful little tip yesterday. Uh, as our next guest described it, it's a bit of a, a story of how a poorly planned rollout of a vaccine signup can get in the way of people getting the vaccine and an instance maybe of uh, citizens coming to the rescue here for folks who were having a tough time. So joining us uh, to talk more about uh, this side of the story, very pleased to welcome to the program this morning, uh, Corey Mathewson is a research scientist with DeepMind, a lab scientist with Creative Destruction Lab, and sort of found himself in uh, the middle of all of this yesterday. I don't think he anticipated uh, it uh, unfolding that way for him yesterday. Corey Mathewson, uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Absolutely happy to be here. Thanks for uh, chatting about it. I absolutely did not expect uh, this <laughs> yes. to roll out in this way.: Yeah, the
1: last 24 hours for you, I suspect unfolded a lot differently than, than you expected when you woke up yesterday
5: morning:
4: That's true. Um, <laughs> yesterday was supposed to be a day off and uh, it, you know the, the morning was pretty relaxed and then the afternoon really really took off um, after after booking you know both grandparents and then sort of helping the rest of the grandparents of Alberta get booked.
1: Well, and I guess you knew you'd be helping your own grandparents. You didn't know you'd be helping other grandparents. But uh, you were like a lot of folks, I imagine, yesterday say, okay, today's the day and people have parents and grandparents, you know, eager to to help them navigate uh, these websites. So that's basically what you were doing yesterday morning then.
4: And that's exactly right. Yeah, we had sort of planned. I have an older brother and a younger brother, and we sort of planned that the older brother would do the booking, uh, but everyone would be kind of on call to do, you know, the mm-hmm. scheduling and making sure all the communication was happening, happening all right. And then sure enough, one grandparent gets booked, the, mo- the grandmother gets booked, and then the grandfather booking system kind of slows down. So we go in, try to diagnose it, debug it, and, uh, you know, it was a bit of a a sticky kind of quicksand part of the form submission that happened so we start diagnosing debugging and came up with a fix pretty quickly and then it was a question of okay you know call everyone you know who's got a parent grandparent trying to book see if this fix works for them sure enough it does and then we wrote it up as a bit of a Twitter story and at that point it really took off and it was just amazing to see how many people it was working for so quickly.
1: Well, that was, you know, the the encouraging thing about it, right, to see all all these responses that I tried it and it worked and we finally got through and I'm so happy we got an appointment booked for for dad or for grandma. Uh, So that was pretty neat to see. So let's talk about what the issue was. My understanding is this was the part of the website where you were asked to enter a postal code, right?
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. So the first thing that happened on the vaccine uh, booking system sign up was you enter a postal code, which is then supposed to match you as best as I understand it with the closest vaccine center so it was sort of doing a geographic mapping and saying okay if this is your address then what's the address of the closest center where you mm-hmm. can book an appointment and that is you know a, a, it's a it's a function that has to be called that sort of says you know what's the distance to all the different ones and then what's the closest one but mm-hmm. that function was taking too long and it was actually doing something in computer science we call timing out and that means that there was no response coming on the form. So there was no error. There was no uh, success. It was just timing out. And so there were actually, you know, a few different ways that we came uh, up with as three brothers to kind of fix it. One of them was extending the length of time that it would wait, and that was working. And then we were thinking, no, it's got to be easier because if we're going to get other people to do it, it's got to be as easy as possible. So one way we did it is just sort of said, okay, assume that the person can, you know, choose what the closest place is. All they have to do then is get past that kind of long waiting timeout. And to do that, we just showed the rest of the form. We just added a little bit of code and, and showed the rest of the form, and then that that worked, you know, really easily. And it was a bit subversive, but, you know, all of that information, all that detail was, was there. People still had to enter all of their information just as they did before. And we didn't, like, modify the functionality of any of the, the website or anything.
1: Right. You're not, you're not hacking the website or creating a shortcut for people. It was just uh, it was helping people get past a, a point that, that under normal, normal circumstances, would have been functioning properly. And that's, that's what would have happened.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's like things are moving fast. You know, as slow as things are moving, they are moving relatively quickly, and there's going to be growing pains and kind of bumps along the way. And this was just a matter of, you know, there was some congestion, a little clog here, and we sort of said, yep, you could just kind of go around this way and then still make it to your destination relatively quickly. And the amount of time collective, this is what I'd like to do calculate the amount of time collectively that everyone saved from all these messages that i'm getting on twitter and email people saying you know i was on for two hours i was on for three hours then i did this you know to think that we saved all of this time for people is is pretty amazing
1: well yeah, i mean that that's that's good that it happened in that sense but it's unfortunate this problem existed in the first place so based on your own observations Does this seem like just, you know, kind of an innocent mistake, an oversight, or did it speak to some some more fundamental flaws in putting all of this together?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, the government is working as hard as they can to make this work. AHS is working real hard to get everybody booked, I'm sure. In this situation, it was... You know, I, I have some skills that can help to divert traffic around this particular hangup, which may have been caused for any number of reasons. It could have been something like, you know, too many people tried to sign up on the form, not in an hour, not in a minute, but in the same second or something that then the system wasn't ready for. And as a software developer, you can test, but you can only test so much. You know, you have to deploy it out there and you have to start getting people interacting with it. And it's an iterative process. So you kind of make the software as good as you can, release it, and then get some feedback, get some interaction. And this was you know, a step along the way uh, to improving it.
1: What's interesting is they've removed now the part where you enter a a postal code and and now you're essentially put into a queue and you're told how many others are ahead of you in the queue. Alberta Health Services says the change has nothing to do with the workaround mentioned on Twitter, referring to your work. So, I mean, look, obviously you booked your grandparents. There's no need for you to go back into the website. But what are you hearing about the change?
6: Um
4: yeah I've 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 heard that um I've also continued to get messages on Twitter people saying that uh you know thank you I was able to book these these grandparents I don't know when they're doing those bookings but you know knowing that there is a system in place that is helping relieve some of the pressure on the system that's great that's what this was all about and uh you know we made it work yesterday we made it work better than it was working yesterday, and that helped get like more than 70,000 people booked through the system. So I I hope that they're continuing to improve the system. That's like software's continual iteration and improvement. And if we're going to get all of Alberta, you know, booked in and vaccinated, well, that's going to take a good amount of iteration and a good amount of scaling and a lot of effort from a lot of different people.
1: All right. Well, if people want to find uh, what it was you shared yesterday, it's uh, on your Twitter page. It's, it's in fact the pinned tweet, so it's right at the top. You're on Twitter at Corey Math. That's Corey with a K. Corey Math, all one word. Corey, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this.
4: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. Take care. That is a uh, computer scientist, uh, research scientist, University of Alberta graduate, Corey Mathewson, and his experience uh, yesterday. In uh, what started off as helping grandma and grandpa get an appointment booked and turned out he ended up helping a whole lot of other people, not not hacking the website or anything, but just uh, one little coding tweak that would fix this problem that existed at that point of the the booking process where you went to enter a postal code and then you kind of end up hitting sort of a, a virtual brick wall of sorts. So it was a way to get around that or to at least fix that problem for folks. And judging by the, the replies, it really worked for a lot of people. Okay, we got to take a break here. Plenty more still to get to. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Well, if you text here, look, opinions definitely divided on this. And, and there are some people who are really upset at uh, what happened here, and, and others who are upset that it's a, a story at all. Uh, you know, Rick Bell, the columnist uh, with the uh, Sun newspapers, who's maybe a little bit of a, a barometer on, on how folks are feeling about this, because he's certainly uh, quick to defend the government in some circumstances, but will call them out when he think it's warranted. Uh, the headline in his piece today, Alberta's shoddy shot rollout, a vaccine gong show. A couple of texts here. This one says, shame on Tyler Shandro. Other one says, well, now you can get in and get a first appointment, but no second appointments are available. On the other hand, though, this text uh, says, Rob, I'm disgusted at the anger and disappointment people are displaying over the vaccine booking systems. Give your heads a shake. Did you honestly think there would be no hiccups? This is a massive undertaking and everyone is doing their best. Maybe these negative Nellies think they could do better. So, sure, fair enough, not everything's going to unfold perfectly. But at what point are governments ever responsible then when things don't? Where does benefit of the doubt end and accountability begins? Now, maybe your answer is going to depend in part on your own partisan affiliations and you know, how you feel about uh, whether it's the provincial UCP government, the federal liberal government. Sure, I I think people understand that at some level. This is a mammoth undertaking, and it's not all going to unfold smoothly and perfectly. It seems that there were some flaws in the design of this website and flaws that prevented people from being able to make an appointment in the first place. That's not good. Again, we knew the date, we knew the time, we knew how many people were going to be eligible. That was all by design. So the Alberta government knew... When they wanted to launch this, how many individuals are going to be uh, eligible to make an appointment? Uh, They chose all of that, presumably because they felt they could deal with it. It turned out maybe they weren't. So I think it's fair to point that out as well. But we'll continue this conversation. We're going to talk more about the impact of the vaccinations we've already administered. And when we come back, Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. All right, welcome back. Welcome to this hour. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Our number in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Got some time for your calls coming up later in this hour. Got a lot more to get to in the program today. Later on this afternoon, don't forget it is budget day. That budget comes down at 315 or so this afternoon. And we're going to hear from, uh, among others tomorrow, the uh, finance minister himself, Travis Taves. But off the top of this hour, let's continue the conversation around vaccines. And uh, yeah, we spent some time talking about some of the problems in rolling out vaccines, and I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about more problems as this all goes along. It's uh, definitely a big undertaking. But I want to focus as well on what the payoff is, you know, why we're doing this, and what kind of results we expect to achieve here. For example, The New York Times today reporting on some really interesting data out of the U.S., that since vaccines became available, uh, cases, coronavirus cases among nursing home residents of the U.S. have dropped more than 80 percent. Deaths have decreased by more than 65 percent. And we're starting to see that, that here. Alberta has focused, obviously, on vaccinating those in long-term care. And uh, the data already is pretty encouraging. Infection rates uh, are down, down quite significantly, in fact. Uh, amongst uh, long-term care residents in Alberta. So it it starts to get us to a position where really ultimately we want to be, to say these vaccines are working, now what? Does that mean that we can start to ease some of the restrictions that are in place in long-term care? Well, joining us to talk more about uh, some of these issues and uh, where we go from here, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, Dr. Lenora Saxinger, infectious disease doctor and associate professor in the faculty of medicine and dentistry at the university of alberta dr Saxinger. great to have you with us here welcome to the program thank you all right so like i say man i think part of the reason why people are frustrated what happened yesterday there's such an eagerness to get vaccinated and we're seeing some really encouraging data about just how good these vaccines are in the real world and i guess that's a good place to be, uh, you know, in in terms of having some of that data. What what are you seeing uh, so far, just kind of big picture in terms of the impact already?
7: Well, I mean, the the biggest thing that became apparent, I mean, we had the the lockdown before Christmas, and so cases started to decline, and it took a long time for that to come through to hospital. So where I work, um, over the past weeks, we've seen, you know, kind of, Decongestion of COVID in the hospital. Things are feeling a lot more comfortable, a lot more normal. Thank goodness. But we've also really seen um, a significant drop in the admission of frail patients who have COVID nineteen. And of course, not all frail long term care patients end up getting transferred into hospital. But I still think that that was quite notable. And then when you just scan the data that that you know is a, is available to me anyway it's really amazing the number of deaths that we were seeing from you know a long-term care setting over most of december was just heartbreaking it was terrible and that trickled down over january and essentially kind of disappeared in february um there, the other thing to look at is you know how many outbreaks there were and if there were outbreaks how many people were affected and how many deaths were associated and all of those numbers also have been dropping very steadily of course i can't tell which one of those you know long term care homes were vaccinated when but the overall pattern is is truly remarkably reassuring like it's fantastic actually
1: yeah, it's encouraging. I mean, you know, we started in December, uh, late December with uh, long-term care homes. I think most long-term care residents have now had both doses of a vaccine, as I understand. And, you know, we, we're seeing the payoff. We're seeing, as you say, cases are down, these outbreaks are down. Uh, one stat here from, from Post Media, in February, only one person has so far died associated with a COVID outbreak in a long-term care setting. That compares to more than 150 in December. That's that's a That's a big difference, isn't it?
8: Oh,
7: it's it's. I mean, it's so reassuring because we're always worried that um, you know the very old people or frail people might not have a strong vaccine response. But this really does appear to be substantially protective, and um, it it really is something that we've needed. (laughs) So it's it's great news for long-term care, and also now that we can get more elderly people in the community uh, immunized, we should continue to see those benefits.
1: So I mean, we we start to get to a point then that maybe it maybe it's now and maybe it's soon where we have a conversation around the rules and restrictions that exist in long term care settings. Those rules are there for a reason, obviously, but at the same time this this whole ordeal has been very difficult on on those who live in long term care very isolating for those who live in long term care. So I don't know what what's your sense of where we're at then on on that question? you
7: know it's uh, I actually think that there does need to be some, you know, review of the risk benefit of allowing more visitors, especially those supportive visitors who actually provide kind of daily interactive care to, to people in long-term mm-hmm. care. Because there, there's quite a cohort, I think, of really dedicated friends and family who had been in the habit of regularly attending with their loved ones in a long-term care setting. And, and I think that's been a really a devastating part of the isolation that's been required to, to have that lost. Um I think that my understanding is anyway, that public health is actually looking for the kind of formal vaccine effectiveness data so that they can actually lay out here's the risk benefit calculation,
9: yeah. and this
7: is who we're going to let in when and And so there is a little bit of a process associated with that. So the gestalt this is going much, much better, might not quite be um, detailed enough for them to make a lot of policy changes, but it's my understanding that it's being looked at pretty actively. And I'm also going to be interested to see what happens in places that are farther along in this process. So, you know, if we look at the U.K. or the U.S., where there's been more vaccine given in these populations, what the experience has been with starting to open up and how to open up more for that interactivity.
1: Right. I mean, it makes sense to to be careful with this and and obviously to be data-driven. But, uh, you know, there's probably some urgency in in addressing this as well. So it's it's a tricky balance, isn't
7: it? It it really is. I mean, I... uh, (laughs) I'm not a public health person, so I'm all just guns ablazing. blazing let them in, but that's probably <laughs> not necessarily the right thing to do. The, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I mean, they've been challenged by, like, bandwidth, actually, because it's been everyone in public health and in the information support area in public health have had, like, 10 to 20 times more work to do than usual for a full year without necessarily a whole lot of extra resources. And so I think um, the, t- the timeliness issue is, is always a bit of a challenge. But you know, I, I do have a sense that it's being looked at pretty actively, and and again, you know, you can never guarantee um, anything. You can you can just give a really strong risk-benefit assessment to try to be as sensible as possible as we work through this. Uh, one thing that might actually change the equation would be, you know, if we start seeing reinfections related to variants um, to which the vaccines are, you know, less effective, mm-hmm. that might change the risk calculation. But I think we have a window here where you know we can at least improve the quality of life of people who, who've really been affected by the isolation um, over the
1: last while. Yeah, we can't overlook that side of it. And I mean, you know, between the, the vaccinations, I mean, obviously, there's still a, a role for PPE. And, and I know the province is planning on rolling out a rapid tests as, as kind of a screening to, at least for those who work in long-term care. So I think between the three, you know, that, that gives us a lot of safeguards still, doesn't it?
10: Yeah, I think that, you
7: know, a combination of, of you know, good screening, um, using PPE because no screening is perfect, What the rapid tests are good in, in some settings, but you can't use them as a rule out test. You can only say if someone's positive, you can't really say if they're negative. So it's like another another step, another filter. Um, and then PPE use in the home, making sure that, you know, people who are coming into the home have had a chance to be immunized, they being particular about that kind of protection. I think all those steps seem like things that should be doable. And I'm, I'm really kind of hopeful and that, that we'll be able to put some plans together to allow people to have access to support their loved ones.
1: Yeah, let's hope so. We'll leave it there. Dr. Saxinger, appreciate your insight, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here this morning.
7: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: All right, take care. That is uh, Dr. Lenora Saxinger, infectious disease uh, physician, associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry, University of Alberta. So in her view... The numbers are pretty compelling in terms of what we're seeing, that the uh, efficacy data on the vaccines is very compelling. The data we're seeing from other jurisdictions, like the one uh, we mentioned, the story today out of the U.S., again, very encouraging. So let's move forward. We can still move forward cautiously, but let's, let's move forward. I think we're in a good position when it comes to long-term care, and being able to, to go back and re-examine some of these restrictions, It was understandable, obviously, that we would be doing everything we can to keep the virus out of long-term care settings, to try to prevent outbreaks. And, look, frankly, we didn't do a good job, honestly. And, And really, no jurisdiction has, or very few have. So it's not something that's unique to Alberta by any stretch. But now that we've got residents vaccinated... And we're already starting to see that payoff in terms of cases being down and outbreaks being down and deaths being down. And we're seeing similar trends in other jurisdictions. Uh, you know, we should acknowledge that. I, I get that we all want to be cautious and, you know, we don't know for sure every you know, potential scenario, whether it be, you know, the vaccine efficacy, whether it be variants whatever. Let's not sell ourselves short when it comes to the, the successes we have had. We haven't had a lot, uh, so let's not sell ourselves short when we do have successes. And I think that this is, is looking like it represents one. Okay, like I say, we're going to have some open line time in this hour. for 974 in Calgary. seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three is the number in Edmonton. We can certainly talk a bit more about what happened yesterday with the vaccine rollout and clearly strong opinions on both sides that this was a screw-up, the province should have been ready, says, hey, you know, nothing's going to be perfect, we're expecting too much, things seem to be going more or less just fine at this point. So we can talk about that, got some other issues to get to as well. It's Rob Breckenridge sitting in here today. You're listening to The Chorus Radio Network. All right, welcome back. We'll have some time for your calls coming up uh, after 10.30, and, well, we got some time for your calls right now. You've got a few minutes before the bottom of the hour. Uh, so, again, if you're in Calgary, you can reach us, 403-974-8255 in Edmonton, uh, the number is 780-496-0063. And uh, let's get uh, to the phones here. We've got Anne on the line this morning. Uh, Let me try that. There we go. Anne, good morning. Welcome to the program.
11: Thank you. I understood that uh, the registration for the vaccine was for people 75 and over. Uh, I'm 86 years old. I got online, registered, Mm -hmm. got my requisition number and appointment time for 510 Yesterday, I was lucky. When I got there at 5 to 5, there was a lineup about three blocks. So I went straight to the front door, and there was a security person there, and I gave them my requisition number and my time, my appointment time, and she just sort of shook her head. Um, what I would suggest that they do, they should have a security person at the front the front entrance checking for Alberta Healthcare Care and RD, ID plus requisition numbers and another security person should be going down the line up asking people if they had their registration requisition number and if they did bring them up to the front entrance instead people with canes and in um, wheelchairs are waiting in line that have requisition numbers. Okay. And people that were, I swear, they were under 45 years old. I had to mm. wait three quarters of an hour before I got to a nurse to get my shot. I just feel that they should have a better system where people, like I see, the, the lineup was like three blocks long and then you when you got once you got inside you had to wait again
12: right
1: yeah that's interesting Anna. thank you for sharing that with us and so okay i mean you look the good news is she was able to get in was able to get her vaccine but some frustration with uh, how that all played out once uh once she got there let's see here this is uh don don welcome to the program
13: hey hi rob how are you hey don pretty good thanks Hey, I just uh, took my 95-year-old mom in to get her first shot uh, on 137th Avenue. And I have to say, lots of people are complaining. It took me a while to get in, in, but I got her appointment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a massive undertaking to try and funnel tens of thousands of people through. And um, I think they did a pretty good job considering it's the second day of opening. Uh, it's a lot of staff and a lot of preparation. Um, the lady, the lady before mentioned there was lots of people waiting, and the reason people are waiting is they tell you don't show up until five minutes before your appointment, and there was people in line waiting that were half an hour ahead of their appointment. So they're they're log jamming things, right? Okay. So if yeah, people that could would be follow, yeah. yeah. So if people would follow the instructions, I think it would work a lot better but you know everybody wants to be dealt with first and they want everything immediately and you know this is tens of thousands of people they have to funnel through here right so um anyways so i think it it other than logging in uh and trying to get the appointment yesterday online that was a bit of a pain but once i got the appointment the folks at the uh, center where you get your shots are really efficient and helpful and pleasant so
1: just well, wanted to, to
13: sort of say that yeah
1: yeah don't appreciate the phone call yeah i mean the part about the lineups and you know i on the covid testing side i've experienced that where you know you book a test and you give in a time and you know you're dealing with a huge lineup and you know maybe that's to be expected bottom line is are we able to process people are we able to get them through and are we able to to get them what they need I mean, the thing, though, and and why I think it was kind of awkward for the province yesterday is the Alberta government has been saying for weeks now, get us more vaccines, get us more vaccines, get them here. We're ready to go. We're all set up. We're good to go. We just need the vaccines. And I mean, yesterday suggested that maybe the province wasn't as ready as they had suggested. So, okay, sure, fine. We can expect some some problems along the way. But at the same time, right, the province, if they're going to claim to be ready, then they, they'd better be ready. We'll come back. More time for your calls right after this. All right, Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge uh, sitting in today here on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, be sitting again tomorrow, uh, then next week, and then you know, someone else will be uh, sitting in or hosting or something of the sort. Uh, again, our numbers here uh, in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Calgary you can reach us 403-974-8255. So we will got some other issues we'll get to after 11 o'clock. But as I say, we get some open line time here. More time for your phone calls and certainly a lot of reaction to the uh, vaccine rollout yesterday. Some, some bumps, shall we say. The good news is it seems though they're, they're figuring all of that out. Still managed to get over 70,000 people booked for appointments yesterday. In fact, 2,000 people got their first dose yesterday. And yeah, it, you are able to book both dose appointments, so you at least, you know, people who are getting through have that certainty. You go for dose number one on this date, then you go for dose number two on that date. And there's probably some reassurance there than just saying, okay, you'll get the first dose on this date, and then and then we'll see. You probably don't want that. So that that's a positive as well. So look, yeah, I, I think it's reasonable to acknowledge the positives, but also acknowledge where there's been some issues, you know credit where credit is due, but also government uh, owning its its mistakes and its missteps, so let's get back to the phones here. shall we? This is David David, go ahead
6: jeep as you you you're almost an apologist for the government. you think well, so I... <laughs> well, well I
1: mean you know there there are I people should... who support the government who are upset that we're even talking about this today, okay. so no, well, I don't I think can... I'm an apologist for the government, but go ahead. <laughs>
6: We've had to COVID now for a long time and we knew vaccines were coming. Right. right. And I understand that Alberta Health Services are responsible for the website and for the phone number. Well, according Correct. to the journal, the phone number was only available from 8.20 in the morning until 3.40 in the afternoon. That's not even an eight-hour day. So why didn't they organise a double shift for it, knowing full well how many people would be calling in? I called in 20 times. I didn't get through. But they have done nothing to prepare for this at all, despite the fact we've had almost a year now, or around a year now, of knowing that this was coming. They haven't organised pharmacies to, to... get a list of their patients or people that they would go go give the jabs to, doctor's offices, nothing like that at all. This should all have been done months and months ago. You don't start filling sandbags when the water's lapping at your door and you know there's a flood coming. And they seem to have done nothing. But the same people that have screwed up everything so far still have that job. And it's driving me mad that people that obviously can't do the job or won't do the job are still getting my tax dollars at 80 years old to sit in an office and screw things up totally the minister should have been checking have you what have you done or the minister's office should have been checking with ahs what have you done knowing this is coming up at some point have you organized pharmacies because a lot of farmers pharmacists can give injections have you organized dentists offices because dentists office offices doctors office is that all in line on all they're waiting for is your vaccines coming that none of that has been done again they, it seems to me they can't do anything right and it's about time somebody was fired and saved me some tax dollars no wonder our health care is so darned expensive
1: Okay, David, appreciate the phone call. Uh, You know, here's the thing. And there was a text earlier from someone who said not bothering to load test a website the government knew would be swamped is pretty typical. So, yes, it seems like some of the problems that uh, were being encountered yesterday were avoidable problems, as I said earlier. If the province is going to tell us all that they're ready once the vaccines arrive, then they had better be ready once the vaccines arrive. And in that sense, maybe we weren't totally ready. Again, we can point out that Alberta's actually taking these appointments. Uh, Other provinces aren't yet. Again, Ontario's not going to start booking appointments until uh, March 15th, and I think that's only for either 85 or 90 and up. So if you're 75 years old or older in Alberta, yeah, you're probably running into or possibly running into some problems but maybe you've also got an appointment and that's not the case in other provinces. So again, it just in in the sake of fairness, I want to point all of that out. I'm not letting the government off the hook for what happened yesterday, but nor am I just going to say everything's fine and not talk about this. So maybe I'm going to get that from both sides too, uh, that I must hate the UCP because I'm talking about it. But as David points out, I must also be a UCP apologist at the same time. So uh, who knows? All right, let's get back to the phones here. This is Shane.
3: Shane, go ahead.
0: Hey, I just want to mention real quick. I, I, was, I was kind of disappointed in the callers last week that were roasting about your opinion. Um, everybody's entitled to it. I don't agree with you a lot of the time, but I listen to you because I want your opinion, whether I agree with it or I don't. The reason I, I called is this, though. What do people expect? Once they got in the door to get the vaccine, I haven't heard one person complain that they didn't get the shot in their arm. Mm-hmm. Not once, Okay. So, so what do people want? Because I, th- I really believe there's only two solutions. Either they roll it out in stages where certain people are going to get it first, certain people are going to get it after that, or they're just going to say, you know what, it's going to be a free-for-all. First come, first serve. You think the lineups were long yesterday? See what happens when they make it first come, first serve, and the lineups are three or four miles long. Like, I don't think anybody wants that. So I, I, I personally think everybody – should be sort of happy that once they got in the building, they got, they got their vaccine. Unfortunately for me, I'm probably not going to get it till September after everybody else does. But I'm sure as heck not going to complain about it because it's, it's what they have decided to do. The government has screwed up every single part of this COVID-19 from the word go. And somehow people seem to think that this was going to be done exactly perfectly. It's a pipe dream. Nobody knows, not one person knows exactly what's going on. Not once. But they're going on their best guessing. And that's all it is, is their mm-hmm. best guess. So as soon as everyone starts to understand that w- that everybody, me included, you included, the experts included, nobody has ever dealt with this before. So at the end of the day, we are all guessing and hoping that whatever is decided is the best course. We're never going to get that until this whole thing is over. And then they're going to be able to look back at it and say, man, we made some horrible mistakes. But we also got everyone vaccinated. We we had terrible loss of life, but now we've got it under control. So until we get to that point, the complaining about,
1: For me, is never, ever going to be a solution. All right, fair enough, Shane. Appreciate the phone call. Um, Let's see. We got uh, Sandra on the line next to you this morning. Sandra, go ahead. Uh,
8: I agree with the last caller uh, hugely, uh, and I liked Anne's reasonable voice. Um, This is a first time event, so don't stop complaining, please. A suggestion why not go by people's month of birth so that January people who were born in January would be the ones to make the appointments go get the shots when that's finished go to December and work back and forth so that the system isn't overwhelmed and people aren't Uh, having to wait unduly long because these are elderly people. They get cranky. They get upset. So let's just uh, be patient uh, but try to reduce the number of people clamoring for appointments and showing up. Uh, So go by month of birth. Thank you.
1: Okay, Sandra, appreciate the phone call. Again, I mean, if there was a need to do that, then maybe we could have done that. But the way the Alberta government chose to do it was to make it available to everybody 75 or older at that time on that day. Which again brings it back to them that did more people respond than they thought? Were there issues with the website that they didn't know about or didn't anticipate? Why didn't it work as it was supposed to work? And if there was no way that it was ever going to work that way, then why did they choose to roll it out that way? So I don't think it's unfair to ask that question because we're, we're going with the system that the government specifically chose. And if they shouldn't have chose that system, then that's on them. And if it was supposed to have worked, but it didn't, then that's on them. So I, I don't think it's unfair to point that out. Look, again, it's, it's not a complete and total disaster, and it would be unfair to suggest that it is. But it's also completely true that a lot of people had issues with the website yesterday, couldn't get through, couldn't get through to 811. Was that not foreseeable? So we, we can ask these questions, we can have this conversation, and we can point all of that out. But again, we can still recognize that, okay, at least Alberta's ahead uh, of other provinces in making these appointments available. We did get about 70,000 or so people booked for appointments yesterday. About 2,000 people got their vaccines yesterday. So that's all good. Anyway, this is uh, Mary marianne. marianne welcome to the breakout.
10: Hi. A friend Hi of mine there. called me about 7 30 last night and said they got through. Uh, so the, he said it, uh, it seems that it slowed down. This was online, online. Okay. Uh, so I uh, got our information quarter to eight. I went online, got my husband registered, quarter after eight, went online, got myself registered, and in registering we got both dates, and so we just have to wait for the time, which is next Tuesday and next Wednesday. So people who have, um, uh, 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 what do you call it, online um, uh, access, and get your grandkids, get your kids, whatever, uh, call later, you know, uh, people go to bed by, old people go to bed by eight o'clock. <laughs> yeah, Not true. all, of course. But, you know, get somebody on there and go much later and you will get your time. Now, two things. Once, when you put in your, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? The code, the letter, um, uh, like T6RJ. What is that? Uh.
1: Oh, your postal code.
10: COVID, right? Covid, mind you, Post a code, the yeah. letters have to be in capital letters, okay? Mm-hmm. So don't put small because you won't go anywhere. Second thing, when it offers you a um, uh, choice of times, don't pick the ones that, so even if it's very convenient, don't pick the ones that say there's two slots left or whatever. Pick at least five slots because by the time they get you there, uh, they might be all gone. So pick a time, might not be convenient, but you'll get a time. And that's that's how we got through. And we had tried probably 500 times during the day online. I mean, um, uh, yeah, I've tried online and on phone. So try later in the night, and you might uh, might be lucky to get your loved ones in.
1: Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, oh. Marianne, appreciate. Oh, sorry, Mariana, just lost you. I think she was going to say something else there. Uh, let's get uh, Sue in here. Sue, go ahead.
7: Hi, Rob. Uh, First time caller to your show. And I won't keep you long, but I just wanted to say two things. Um, my, we lost my mother-in-law to COVID on Sunday night, and she died oh a God. horrific death because of the situation that she was in, which was terrible enough. Um, thank you. And we flipping around, I have two parents that are in their 70s that we were all just heightened, of course, to then get them them signed up for the vaccine right. yesterday morning. So we had... You know, my kids, my brothers, we had so many people, you know, ready to go 8 a.m. Monday morning, or sorry, Wednesday morning, of course, encountered all of the frustrations and and sight issues uh, that everybody else did. But as we were multitasking, working, you know, redialing the phone and everything, somewhere in the bowels of the Internet, we found this screenshot of the fix, the coding fix. Right. And thank God for that, because I gave it to my brother, the engineer. He got in there. He got past that stuck page. And God bless those people. We have now two appointments, one on Friday and one next Thursday for both of my parents. So amazing individuals. Nerds are the new heroes of the world. They could fix something that whatever team that AHS has, you know, first of all, couldn't foresee it. And second of all, didn't have a crack team waiting on the spot to, to solve these problems because they're so, I don't even know what they are. They're just so small minded and so tight with who's allowed to give any kind of input. Um, these guys solved it in minutes. So thank God for them. God bless them. And as far as I'm concerned, they may have very well saved my parents' lives.
1: Well, quite a roller coaster uh, for you and your family, Sue. I uh, appreciate and the many. phone call and yeah, thank all you, the Brock. best to you. Thanks yeah. To take them. care. Bye. All right. There you go. Um, so, well, yeah, like I say, quite an emotional ride for, for her family. There you go. And there's both sides of it, though, in a nutshell, in terms of the vaccines. Couldn't get through on the website. Clearly, there was a problem people were running into. You know, some some smart citizens out there, some nerds, as she says, uh, found a fix. They got through. Now they got appointments. Just a few days from now, her folks are going to get vaccinated. So I think that, in a nutshell, is kind of both sides of it. The bad, in terms of the, the website problems... But the good, that look, they're in. They got appointments booked. They're going to get their vaccines in just a few days. we got to take a quick time out here. We'll come back. More time for your calls. Rob Brickenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. All right. Welcome back. Uh, Marianne did want to get another quick point in. There uh, uh, we go. Marianne, yeah, go ahead and finish your thought there
10: about that um also there are over 100 pharmacies that are giving out uh injections and you can book two or three or four people whatever you want with them just go to the alberta site and it'll be right on top and it'll list all the pharmacies that are close to you and it's that's another good way to to book and be assured that you get a shot
1: thanks Good boy, Marianne. Thanks for that. And you know what? And I think Alberta was the first to, to allow pharmacies to administer flu shots. And, you know, we've kind of to, come to accept that as, as the norm because that works so well. So yeah, I like that approach. Absolutely. Let's, let's get the pharmacies as part of the team here. Uh, let's see what we got next here. This is uh, Brad, Brad, go ahead. Hey,
5: Rob. I hey, think Brian. this kind of, is a symptom of three things. Um, frustration, the COVID, uh, everybody's pretty tired of this thing. Fear, uh, the fear that, like it or not, the media has um, instilled in the population, uh, some of it warranted, some of it not, and bureaucracy. If you were to ask the IT guy who runs that whole show, if he was 100% sure that nothing would go wrong, he probably could not have answered that affirmatively. And if you want to wait till they know it would be perfect, maybe they wouldn't have launched for another five or six weeks. I mean, have you ever tried to make an appointment for imaging or anything? I have to sit on hold for an hour just to get um, some kind of imaging done on my shoulder
6: mm-hmm.
5: with uh, one of the clinics that are available. So if you think that or if you thought that this was going to run smoothly, um, I think that was an irrational expectation. And as some people say, is perfect the enemy of, of the good. My dad is 90 years old. He lives in Manitoba. He can't get his COVID shot. Apparently, uh, according to their website, they have to inoculate 180,000 people before they get to him, and he's 90. Yeah. So you go, bread Yeah. What are, um I mean, just be thankful that we can do this now. Uh, other last point, uh, and I'm sure there, there's a hundred different ways they could have done this better. But every time you add a level of complexity to the process, you confuse people. Simply saying, if you're born in this year or later, you can call is a lot easier than saying, well, if the moon's a, is blue on a Wednesday, you can call between five and six. If you happen to have a middle initial C in your last name, you can call between six and seven. That adds confusion.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I don't think that would have worked too well, as some have suggested. Uh, This is Kevin. Kevin, go ahead.
5: Hey, Rob. Thanks for
14: taking my call. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in criticism or criticism and do it credit where credit is due, and people need to just relax a little bit. I was trying to help my folks yesterday get their appointments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we tried for a couple hours and weren't able to get through. They ended up calling their local pharmacy and uh, got on those for appointments. No big deal. And I hate to say it, but these, these people that are saying, oh, I had 12 different family members trying to get appointments for whoever, you're actually part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem. Websites go down all the time. People have to wait to get concert tickets or, for goodness sakes, you hear criticism when it's like, oh, I tried to book my camping site. At the end of the day, 70,000 Alberta seniors got appointments In one day, like, really, this was not a disaster that people are making it out to be. I hope they learn some lessons when they open it up to the next batch of the general public to maybe just put everybody in a queue rather than get the error message. But, I mean, come on, like, we really need to be realistic here. 70,000 Alberta seniors, that's 70,000 more than most every other province. So maybe we can just relax a little bit and be realistic. Yeah,
1: fair enough, Kevin. I appreciate the call. I mean, we should definitely be realistic. I agree. But also, as Kevin alluded to, though, this is the easy part of all of this. We're still dealing with relatively low numbers compared to what's coming. So that's my concern. Yeah, maybe I wasn't surprised to hear that people were running into problems. There were delays. I, I think, you know, the, the um, it was coding problem or whatever mistake it was where people were trying to enter their postal code, it would just, it would just spool. They couldn't get past that. That That's a problem. And that, that kind of stuff needs to be dealt with either ahead of time, make sure you don't have those problems or be able to fix it uh, quickly once you recognize it's a problem. So yeah. Have we learned those lessons going forward? Because if we can't handle what was yesterday, what's going to be the issue that we face when we're talking about much bigger numbers. So that's the concern, by the way, Uh, some new numbers out of the U.S. today. So six weeks ago, 14% of people over 75 in the U.S. had gotten a vaccine, uh, at least one shot. Today, that number stands at nearly 60%. So we got a lot of catching up to do. And this is all a step in the right direction, let's be clear. And Alberta's certainly, I think at this point, uh, taking the lead past a lot of the provinces. So that's all worth pointing out, too. Okay, we're up against the top of the hour here. It's Rob Breckenridge uh, with you here today on the Chorus Radio Network. All right welcome to this hour of the program rob Breckenridge in today on the chorus radio network coming up after eleven we'll talk about uh, the alberta government's legal challenge of bill c69 which the premier calls the no more pipelines act uh, technically it's the uh, impact assessment act and uh, it is now of course it's passed it's law it's in in practice it's the uh, new approval process for big new projects it's interesting because in the whole debate around coal policy, the premier was touting the fact that any coal project would have to be approved through this process. But the province is also challenging in court. We'll talk about that coming up after 1130. More time for your calls coming up as well. Well, yeah, talk about uh, you know some of the delays people are running into with uh, booking a vaccine appointment. Uh, there have been uh, delays and frustrations uh, for uh, travelers re-entering Canada. We're trying to navigate this whole system uh, of the mandatory hotel quarantine policy that the government brought in with increasing concern about variants uh, emerging in other countries. So we're, we're changing the requirements for people who are traveling into Canada, both in terms of what you need for a test before you fly, what you need for a test once you arrive. And for those returning by air, yes, uh, there is the expectation then that you spend uh, at least three days in a hotel while you wait those test results. And if you test positive, well, that's a whole other layer. So, the, yeah, there's been some frustration in, in navigating all of this or just the frustration that the policy exists. I mean, it's put hotels in kind of an awkward position, I, I suppose, because, you know, we need hotels to be a part of this. And so if you're returning to Calgary, which, again, is one of only four airports in Canada receiving international flights, then you've got some hotels to choose from. So, yes, this is business for hotels at a time when, yeah, I mean, hotels have obviously been incredibly hard hit by this whole pandemic situation. Uh, So what does it mean for them in being a part of this and and helping to administer all of this? Joining us to talk more about it is uh, Sol Zia, Executive Director of the Calgary Hotel Association. Uh, Sol, thanks for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program.
15: Good morning, Rob. Uh,
1: so talk a bit about, uh, you know, the the involvement of hotels in, in this quarantine plan. How, how's this all working or how were hotels uh, in, invited to be a part of this?
15: Well, Rob, it stems from Calgary's hotels. Uh, we've been continuously part of the support efforts to keep travelers safe. We've been working with every level of public health, whether it's municipal, provincial or federal, to protect um, travelers as they come in. And we've been compliant and involved with every program. Uh, so it stems from that, um, this this new program. But it, uh, to be honest, it's it's not a it's not it's not a significant amount of business. There's probably a lot more work related to adapting to this program.
8: Yeah.
15: But Rob, as it is on a day like today, there's only four flights coming in. With I've heard um, between eight to twenty passengers from four U.S. airports. So there isn't oh, okay. really uh, a significant amount of activity. Um, We have heard it's frustrating for guests to try to book, um, but the government has allowed travelers coming in um, from international flights to book directly with the hotels now. So we think Calgary is, um, and our hotels have adapted very well to this, but to be honest, we're not talking about more than a few dozen people on any given day.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's important to note. How many hotels are a part of this then, do we know?
15: There's five hotels in Calgary that are participating in the program right now.
1: All right. So as you say, so now there's the opportunity to at least book directly through the hotel, because that wasn't wasn't how it was set up initially, right?
15: Correct. Uh, Although we're not sure whether the ability to book direct will be permanent or temporary. But as you acknowledged earlier in this conversation, um, before I got on, uh, there's been a great deal of frustration, from travelers, uh, you know, across the country trying to get in uh, on the long wait times they received Mm -hmm. on the government's designated travel agent.
1: Right. And and you mentioned, you know, the the, the costs involved, right? Because if hotels are going to be a part of this, then they need to make sure they're set up so that, you know, all the government's expectations are are met. What what does that involve?
15: Uh, I mean, the hotels are complying with the overall uh, scheme, which is, you know, three nights accommodation, Three meals a day, although we are more than willing to adapt should anyone's dietary requirements require more than three meals a day. Uh, And then safety and security of the guests uh, as they stay here. How are they getting to
1: the hotel?
15: That's a good question. So the government has allowed a number of uh, transportation methods. First of all, for those hotels that were in terminal, which all four cities involved in this program have, you've simply you know, leave, check-in, and, and go to the hotel right within the terminal. Uh, shuttle transportation is permitted uh, for those hotels that are off uh, terminal. But The government is actually allowing those who, let's say snowbirds, for example, who have their vehicles parked somewhere near the airport to obtain their vehicles and drive to the hotel.
1: Now, the other interesting aspect is, is the cost of all of this, the traveler, because the government was talking initially just about $2,000, and we just kind of, it seemed as though that wasn't an up to $2,000. The government was just basically telling everyone, this is going to cost you $2,000. But now it turns out that, well, it's not quite $2,000, and that maybe that depends on, on the hotel itself and its cost, because what I understand that the costs do vary uh, among some of the hotels that are a part of this program, including those in other cities. So, how, how is that slide working?
15: Well, as I've said to um to uh, others in the media, the the hotels never were a party to the $2,000 number. That was, and the government has acknowledged, came from their own research and analysis, and you're absolutely correct. The range for the three-day stay varies by city. Cities like Toronto and Vancouver are significantly more expensive than Calgary, um, and it varies by the type of property who's hosting the guest.
1: Now- the, the three day is meant to, to allow for time for that test result to come back. The, the travelers arrive, they're, they're tested. Is the test done at the airport or is it done at the hotel?
15: Correct, the test is done at the airport. At the um, airport, okay. Yeah, in, in our case, um, right around, uh, I believe it's door 17 or, or right away. It's done right away, YYC.
1: What's the protocol then if, if somebody's test comes back positive?
15: It's a different protocol. Um, and and apps, uh, actually, the hotels are directly involved. There are designated quarantine facilities that the government is operating. Should but those anyone find positive? Right. Yeah.
11: Okay.
15: Which is a separate uh, program by the public health agency.
1: Right. Okay. So just to, to clarify all of that, let me ask you, too, Solomon. I mean, you know, putting this program aside, I mean, obviously the the restrictions on travel, just everything else, it's it's having a huge impact on, on the hotel industry. But hotels are are still operate, are still able to operate, and wanting to make sure that that people who are traveling or need to stay somewhere are kept safe. What options are there for hotels in terms of reaching out to customers? You know, through encouraging staycations, uh, that that sort of thing. Where where are hotels trying to get creative here? I guess and when it comes to to uh, business
15: you know rob that's that's a fantastic question there is the hotels are wide open and we've got great events happening in the city right now we have the curling bubble um which is going to count right. for thousands of room nights and a huge contribution i think 11 million dollar contribution to our city economy we have outdoor safe outdoor festivals like chinook blast um and hotels have set up all sorts of deals for families to stay and i have to admit if you if you research some of those the stays are almost to the point of being free. The combination of a really attractive room rate, 30 or $40 dollars a day in, in food and beverage credits, valet parking or free parking. There's some amazing offers for Calgarians and those in the region to stay at a hotel. Uh, and they are being creative when it comes to single family to use a pool or a fitness facility and dining. But uh, the hotels are wide open, and that's where the business is more so than the, the three-day quarantine program.
1: Well, by the way, people can read more uh, on some of those uh, packages, uh, ChinookBlast.ca and uh, much more at CalgaryHotelAssociation.com. So, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. really appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. All right, take care. Uh, That is uh, Sol Zia uh, with the Calgary Hotel Association and uh, just kind of an overview of uh, how the quarantine uh, situation is working. So obviously some hotels, so five in Calgary, are involved as, as a part of the quarantine. So, yeah, there's been some frustration with how the government rolled that out. That certainly, yeah, there, there are costs on the hotels too in, in being a part of this, but at least now travelers seems uh, seem to have the opportunity to book directly with the hotels, which maybe should have been the obvious go-to at the outset. And it was just a lot of needless confusion, I think, created by the government in the way they set it up to, to book these hotels and then the, the confusion around the cost. So, again, and maybe there's some parallels with the whole situation with vaccine booking that, yeah, this is a big undertaking. And maybe it was anticipated there would be some confusion or some some problems. But, yeah, this is something that, uh, you know, the government chose to set it up this way. So I think at the same time, they need to be accountable for where there are some problems here, where there's confusion. So hopefully that straightens some of that. up. We'll take a time out here. We'll come back. We'll have some more time for your phone calls. Got a few other things to get to here as well. Rob Breckenridge with you here today on the Chorus Radio Network. Right, welcome back. Yeah, there's a piece today in the National Post from Chris Selly who uh, points out that uh, only a few days in and the mandatory hotel quarantines are already a debacle. Uh, there they were some stories out of Toronto where essentially travelers are showing up and they're just leaving the airport. Uh, some are just walking out. Uh, others are saying, uh, you know, just give me a ticket because I'm not going to a hotel. So that's been a, a bit of a fiasco. And then we have the more uh, concerning situation. Uh, from uh, Halton Regional Police in, in Ontario, where a quarantine officer who had been hired by a private security company was charged after allegedly demanding cash from an Ontario resident and then sexually assaulting the woman when she refused to pay. So I'm not sure if, if this was in one of the hotels. I think this was actually one in, in one of the quarantine facilities that perhaps this is someone maybe who had, Tested positive? I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, that's pretty alarming. In fact, the, the conservatives, uh, as a result, were calling for a suspension of the mandatory hotel quarantine uh, mm-hmm. after these uh, media reports uh, uh, emerged. So that, that's a little bit alarming as well. So that's, yeah, somebody texted, Rob, have you heard anything about the woman who had been sexually assaulted by one of these security guards? And yeah, that's, that's the story. So that's, that's definitely a big problem. So what are we doing to fix all of that? I mean, I, I get in, in theory the idea that, you know, we, we need something in place to ensure that we're not importing more of the problem here. You know, the, the, the government's response has been really kind of haphazard and sort of all over the map and confusing. You know, countries who are smart about this have been basically doing this all along. You know, Taiwan was one of the first countries to really essentially close its borders, and they've been pretty smart about it since. So, if you want to travel to and from Taiwan, then you know, be prepared for for something like this. So, I, I mean, I get the idea. It just is, has not been it's not been consistent. It's not been responsive. It's been a bit of a mess. But what do we expect? What do we? What kind of rules should be in place when it comes to international travel? Should it be targeted travel restrictions, depending on where people are going or coming from? Is a test sufficient? You know, how, how should we handle this? Because obviously the, these variants of concern are referred to that for a reason, because they are concerning. But I think part of the issue here is, you know, that that horse is kind of out of the barn, that we were kind of slow in reacting to all of this, weren't we? So that's what we got. Hopefully they can deal with these issues. But uh, yeah, you want to weigh in on that. Again, our number here, 403-974-8255. Also 780-496-0063. Of course, don't forget, we got the Alberta budget coming down around 315 this afternoon is when it'll be presented in the Alberta legislature. We'll have the finance minister, Travis Taves, on the program tomorrow morning. So there's obviously going to be a lot to unpack in this budget. From what we're hearing, we're anticipating a a deficit somewhere in the neighborhood of $14 billion, although that is down from from the last budget that was tabled. Something I'm curious to see as well, what the province is uh, forecasting in terms of oil prices. You know, we've seen in the past where governments have been off the mark in forecasting oil prices, and in fairness, it's, it's not easy to do. And right now, we're at an interesting moment where depending what happens with the pandemic, you know, there's some forecasts suggesting that demand's going to bounce back in a huge way, that the pandemic itself has actually created some potential uh, supply shortages. Uh, we could be headed to uh, $100 a barrel. And, you know, it was a level that you know, a lot of people thought we would never achieve again. So if that's in the cards uh, for, for this year, even potentially early next year, that could be a, a real wild card in terms of Alberta's budget. So like, I don't expect the Alberta government's going to be banking on $100 a barrel oil. I don't think you're going to see those forecasts in the budget. But, you know, that's something else the government's been accused of in the past is, you know, being too conservative when it comes to oil prices. And then, wow, look at that, um, you know, I get all this money rolling in uh, that they didn't account for. So that's that's going to be something to watch. Uh, by the way, and something else we'll keep an eye on, uh, either today or tomorrow, the CFL, from what we're hearing, the CFL and the CFL Players Association are on the same page. They've submitted a return to play plan uh, to the federal government and to the various provinces. Now, I know initially, and when the CFL put out, I think it was in November, they put out their uh, their tentative schedule for 2021. Uh, they anticipated having uh, fans back in the stands, but... That might be a little too optimistic, at least for May or June anyway. But here's hoping. Anyway, let's get back to the phones here quickly. We've got um, Dean on the line here. Dean, go ahead.
4: Hi, how are, you, how are you doing, brother? Hey, Dean, pretty good. Hey, I just wanted to mention, I, you know, like, I didn't see any problem with what, how they were handling it before the traveling through the airports with the, uh, you take a test at the airport, you go home. You get tested five days later to make sure that you don't have COVID. And maybe mm-hmm. they should have thought of something like maybe putting an ankle bracelet on them to make sure that they were quarantining their full time. It seemed like it was working. It was, it was only like 1.2% that were coming uh, coming through uh, Calgary Airport with anything, anything wrong, like with any COVID at all. Uh, I thought it was mainly successful, and uh, the Liberal government just threw that out. They didn't even look at it. So I was wondering why the pilot program wasn't working.
3: What was wrong?
1: Yeah, I, I think it was the concern with the variances, and you know, in particular people going home and then quarantining around family members. And I don't know, maybe we could have stuck with that approach. Maybe we'll go back to it some point soon here. Anyway, we'll break here for the bottom of the hour. Much more still to come. We are back with more right after this. Welcome back. Rob Rickenbridge with you here on this Thursday morning, this budget day. Uh, Bill C-69 was uh, quite a contentious piece of legislation when it was first brought forward uh, back in 2019. It was passed, was given royal assent in 2019. Although, it should be noted that the the Senate did make a number of changes uh, to this bill, and was already a complex piece of legislation to begin with. Essentially, uh, C69 was to create a new impact assessment process for big projects, not just oil and gas projects, but it obviously affects those kinds of projects. So the Impact Assessment Act is now the law of the land. And so there is an overhauled review process, which is what, in fairness, the liberals did promise to bring in when they campaigned in 2015. Now, when it comes to environment, when it comes to natural uh, resources, there is some overlapping jurisdiction here. So I think there's some political disagreement on C-69. Did it go too far? Did it set the bar too high? You know, the premier calls it the no more pipelines bill. And and to be sure, there's a higher bar that those kinds of projects would need to clear in order to get approval. But what about the jurisdictional dispute here? So the Alberta Court of Appeal is hearing a challenge this week from the Alberta government. And the Alberta government's argument is that the federal government has stepped clear into provincial jurisdiction. The federal government has overstepped its bounds here. And so that's the argument that the court has to hear. It's not a question of whether this is a flawed process, not a question of whether the bar is set too high, but a, kind of a jurisdictional question here. So joining us to talk a bit more about um, some of these these issues specifically and how we judge the question of jurisdictional overreach very pleased to welcome the program here this morning uh martin Olzinski. he's an associate professor of environmental and natural resources law and policy at the university of calgary uh professor Olzinski, thanks for joining us here welcome to the program
12: yeah thanks for having me
1: all right and just clarify your own involvement here you've you've submitted i I believe a a brief to the the court on this is that correct
12: no, so I haven't been involved in this one. You uh, like haven't involved, been? Okay. Uh, no, no, not yet. We'll see. Maybe, maybe I will be in, uh, <laughs> okay. in a, when it goes to the Supreme Court, which all of us are expecting it will. Um, sort of similar to the greenhouse gas pricing reference. Um, uh, so, no, I haven't been involved. I've certainly been following along very closely, um, and uh, this is an area that I have taught for sure. Um, so, and I've written sort of in the area uh, over the past sort of. Ten years or so. So, so certainly, I am following it all very closely.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the carbon uh, tax decision, which was an interesting one because you know the federal government does have taxing jurisdiction, obviously. But uh, you know, the court decision here highlighted some other potential issues. Do, do you see that impacting this challenge at all, or do you see any parallels there?
12: So, you know, it's it's a little bit it's, it's a little different. Uh, or very different I guess in in lots of ways and so the first one is that that with the carbon price reference you know it's clear that the federal government was doing something new okay we were you know we had never seen that kind of broad-based sort of price put on pollution um and 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 it was very sort of let's say like pretty brave it said very clearly it was relying on this sort of what we call the residual sort of federal power for peace order and good government so so that's sort of that case and, and where we expect a decision from the Supreme Court actually um shortly. Um in this instance, actually, in some ways, this issue was decided thirty years ago. And in fact it was in Alberta again that it was decided under a different federal environmental assessment regime, what was called the ERPGO, the Environmental Assessment Review and Process Guidelines Order. And and it was applied sought to be applied to actually the Old Man River Dam. And so the Friends uh but you know Canada was actually reluctant in that case to do it the Friends of the Old Man River Society sort of dragged Canada to court and said, you have to do this, at which point Alberta challenged the constitutionality of that federal environmental assessment regime. And in a decision that's pretty sort of like iconic, uh, every first-year law student learns about the Friends of the Old Man River case, um, the Supreme Court very clearly held that, of course, the federal government has the authority when making its own decisions about projects, and that's a really important qualifier, but when making its own decisions about impacts on areas of federal jurisdiction that of course the federal government can assess those impacts proactively in order to decide whether or not those whether or not it wants to in fact approve those impacts right so in the case of the old man river there were impacts on navigation there were impacts on fisheries there were impacts on some of the neighboring first nations and so the Sup- supreme court said of course the federal government can set up a process to consider those questions when it's being asked to issue an authorization. And so then what's happened is just that, you know, Canada being what it is, we are on our fourth environmental assessment regime at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really the changes over time, I think, to that regime that have, you know, essentially put the wind in a sense in, in the province's sails or, or sort of at least given it a reason to say, well, well, maybe that's the true, that maybe that's correct generally, but we say this regime, Goes too far. Yeah, it's
1: interesting. And I remember, you know, last year, early last year, right around this time last year, in fact, there was uh, a lot of debate around uh, tech, the company tech, and their proposed Frontier Oil Sands Mine project. Yeah. And uh, the decision by the federal government not to approve that. And I remember the question coming up at the time, well, Rob, if this is entirely based in Alberta, why is the federal government the one to decide on this? And as it turned out, uh, tech had actually opted to go through the federal review process. But it does speak to where there's there's overlapping jurisdiction that Alberta has its own environmental regulator, that there are projects that that the Alberta government has the final say on. There are projects that the federal government has the final say on. It maybe feels like to, to a lot of people maybe uh, on the outside, that it's not clear which is which. So where does one jurisdiction end and, and the other begin?
12: So, so those are great questions, And I'll, but I'll just clarify first a little bit around Frontier. So actually what happened in Frontier, uh, that was actually under the C A 2012 regime, the one before this one, and in fact right. it was a regime passed by the Harper government in 2012. Right. And, and so that's actually the deep irony in all of this litigation as well, is that one of the major issues that, that Alberta takes sort of umbrage at with this legislation is that it creates this project list that, that projects are presumptively in unless they're out. That was, of course, that was the Prime Minister who did that, Prime Minister Harper in 2012, with our current Premier then a Cabinet Minister. So, so there is some <laughs> some um, irony in all of that. And, and then the other point to make, so, so they were required actually to undergo that assessment. It wasn't with the previous Act, not under the Impact Assessment Act, not the current legislation that's being challenged, but actually the, the one, again, that former Prime Minister Harper passed, And it was actually Frontier that withdrew, actually, before the federal government made its decision. Frontier, and there was a letter, and it was in the news, right? They basically said, Alberta, you don't have your stuff together when it comes to, and and maybe it was Alberta and Canada generally, but it it just felt, it was very clear they saw there was jeopardy for their project, and they didn't think that they could move forward. Um, And so, so just to clear that up. But in terms of then, as you say, that's a great point. So there was a time once. 100 years ago when, when our courts would sort of try to interpret provincial and, and federal jurisdiction as, w- as what we called watertight compartments. So each had their compartments and where the one jurisdiction ended, the other began and vice versa. But that, that approach, unfortunately, just, it's just not workable, actually. And so instead, what the courts have said is that there is overlap. There, there is going to be considerable overlap, especially in an area like the environment which actually isn't mentioned at all in the constitution not surprisingly in, in 1867 nobody was really thinking about environmental protection in any kind of meaningful way but so they so what the court has said is that both levels may legislate in respect of the environment based on heads of power that of course touch on the biophysical sort of aspects and economic mm-hmm. aspects that are all tied into the environment so so certainly in the province we have Section 92A, which the which the the premier has talked about in press conferences, and he refers to that notion of exclusive jurisdiction. But on paper, every power under in the Constitution Act is "quote unquote" exclusive. What the courts have sort of said, they've applied this terminology called "double aspects," where they say, well, one aspect of a project, for instance, like an institute project or a or a hydro dam, some aspects of that fall within provincial jurisdiction. Yes, other aspects fall within federal jurisdiction, like the fisheries jurisdiction or navigation or interprovincial pollution. And so so then it's at at that point, once you've established that, then it's clear that the federal government has jurisdiction where those effects are engaged. And so then it really becomes a question, and this has been the the you know, my great frustration as a froth and a prior, you know, teaching or practicing, I practiced for six years. You know, it's about, it's about recognizing that, that what, what this reality requires is for the federal government and the provincial governments to sit down and come up with a system, a cooperative system, a system that meets the requirements of both levels of government um, and enables them to make good decisions about these projects.
1: Yeah, and, and maybe there's another level of irony when when we look at the debate around pipelines, and uh, you know, in, in you know, B.C. for example, uh, voicing objection to to uh, the, the Trans Mountain project, that the Alberta government has insisted that the federal government has jurisdiction. Even you mentioned Section 92A, which has come up, maybe misrepresented a little bit, but it sort of reinforces the point that uh, the federal government has jurisdiction and can have jurisdiction, even if a project is confined within a single province. So, is is there some contradiction? there between you know the the province's position that the federal government has ultimate authority on pipelines but but that c69 is unconstitutional
12: so so of course with every general principle there are some exceptions and and so the reality actually is that around certain kinds of federal undertakings they are privileged actually so so actually specifically in in the sort of list of provincial powers which refers to local works and undertakings, local projects, there's a specific carve-out for what we call interprovincial works and undertakings. And so historically, that was obviously the rail, and then it's, it's long been understood to apply to also interprovincial pipelines. And, so, and then we get into this funny world. So those projects, those classes of projects are privileged. And, and that's been an irritant, I think, for provinces for a long time because, because in that instance, those projects have what's there's this doctrine that's called inter-jurisdictional immunity and so there are core aspects of those powers not everything there are federal or sorry provincial and municipal laws that do apply to pipelines um, even interprovincial ones you know you have to you have to go to the municipality and get permits to cut trees and do all that kind of stuff but they can't pass laws that impact on the core of the federal jurisdiction over those because of course if they did then they could render those interprovincial works inoperable and, you know, essentially frustrate any federal goals in relation to those. Unfortunately for the provinces, that doctrine has never worked the other way. Um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, so, so there isn't a doctrine that protects provincial works and undertakings from what we would say is otherwise valid federal legislation. And that was brought up in Old Man, and it's being brought up in the hearings this week. But there isn't a case, and, and the court generally has shied away. In fact, even going forward, they said, we don't even really like this interjurisdictional doctrine. We'll, we'll leave it in place for these cases of precedent. But it's very unlikely, going back to what I said, the general thrust of cooperative federalism, of overlap. The courts have basically said, yeah, we really are going to be hesitant to ever apply that to new cases. So that's kind of the state of play.
1: So you know it's interesting because there is a lot of provincial opposition to C sixty nine or what became the Impact Assessment Act. So there are certainly disagreements. But I think when we're talking about these these jurisdictional issues, it's it's a little more objective, or at least we're expecting the courts to view it as such. Do you feel though that it's it's uh, let's put it this way, an uphill battle for the Alberta government in making this argument?
12: So so certainly. You know it's and this is always a bit of a crapshoot you know it's always a we try to listen to judges we try to watch their posture and, and their reactions and we and their questions but you know in fact this morning the chief justice reminded everybody don't play that game because you don't know where our yeah. minds are at um you know i would say that in terms of the law the settled law the jurisprudence like i said this stuff goes back 30 years and then and then there are more cases in between that I, i'm not going to get into but absolutely the constitutional principles are on the side of the federal government. The established case law is on the side of the federal government. So, you know, our Court of Appeal would really have to, again, break some new jurisprudential ground to sort of say, you know, and so it might be that there are just certain aspects. In fact, in the hearing, what we're seeing is that perhaps it's just certain parts of this new regime that our Court of Appeal will find objectionable. It's it's hard to say. But, But certainly, you know, if you ask anyone who has studied this area, read all the cases over 30 years, it has long been the case that the federal government can do federal EA. So, so really the, the challenge here for Alberta is to say that this act transgresses those principles in some way. So it's not a question of if it can, it's just whether this specific act perhaps allegedly goes too far.
1: All right. Well, it sounds like it'll be some months before the Alberta Court of Appeal decides, and then you know, much like the the carbon levy challenge, this could be headed to the Supreme Court eventually too. I would. It imagine.
12: absolutely is. There's no 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 doubt about it. I think in anyone's mind that whatever the Court of Appeal decides, um, it will be appealed to the Supreme Court. Yeah.
1: We'll see where it goes from here. Martin, appreciate the insight on all this. Thanks for making some time for us here.
12: Always, always a pleasure. take care
1: that's uh martin Olzinski, associate professor of environmental and natural resource law and policy at the university of calgary so there's some interesting legal issues at play here i mean if you're a dispassionate legal observer you might take note of all of that but uh, i think dispassionate maybe is not the way to describe how albertans feel about uh, some of the federal liberal approaches to these these matters c69 and c48 in particular all right. We're going to take a quick time out here. Uh Plenty more still to get to in our time remaining. We're back with more right after this. Welcome back. Rob Rickenridge with you here this afternoon. Angela Cocott will uh, take over here after 1230, filling in as I fill in. And, uh Ang, we've been talking about the vaccine rollout. Had some some bumps along the way yesterday. I. Sounds like maybe uh, running a little more smoothly today. I know you're going to pick up that story today, though.
9: And I am encouraged that it is running more smoothly. We've been getting a number of emails and texts rather saying, yeah, I got in, no problem, got on the phone line or got on the website. uh, And I think that's all great. However, I want to have a little more of a conversation about the idea of using 811 as part of the phone line for the rollout. Only because we know 811 is HealthLink. And we know that if we have a concern, do we go to emergency? Hmm, don't know if I should. So that, that's been a great tool for a lot of Albertans. But suddenly, a lot of people are using eight one one to be able to book online. And so, is there a better way? Would there have been a better number that we could have used? I know so many of them are two one ones, three one ones, four one ones. What about seven one one? Something like that. So, I am going to be speaking with friends of Medicare around one forty five, and of course, um, love to hear from the listeners about how things are going today. And I think it is a lot more smoothly because it did take up a lot of our time yesterday.
1: Yeah, didn't eat. And yeah, it was uh, yeah, interesting because we heard from the health minister yesterday afternoon. We didn't hear from Doctor Hinshaw. In fact, we're not gonna hear from Dr. Hinshaw until Monday, so I don't know if we're gonna get an update Uh, either today or tomorrow and how how vaccines are going. I guess we'll uh, we'll watch for that then too.
9: Yeah, and I can understand. I mean, it's the budget today and uh, she usually takes at least one day off. However, earlier in the week, we were under the impression that she would have been making the updates Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then suddenly yesterday morning was like, "Mm, there's not going to be an actual news conference. We'll just see it posted online. So I'm sure today with the budget makes sense. Tomorrow, have the day off. Monday, a lot of people will be tuning in because they want to know, is this the the next step in reopening the economy. So we'll watch that one closely.
1: Indeed, we shall. Thank you. And, uh, Angela Cocot will be in uh, after 12.30. She's filling in for me, as uh, I fill in here in this time slot. And uh, yeah, the budget coming down at uh, 3.15 this afternoon. I want to turn our attention right now to a uh, debate happening uh, just east of Calgary uh, around the community uh, of Rosebud. And uh, there's certainly some opposition, while well, there's also certainly support, uh, for a proposed $500 million motorsports racing park. Now, certainly the Calgary area, I think, is has been lacking that kind of a facility for some time. The question is, you know, where, where do we put one and, and what kind of a project makes sense? So th- this is actually pretty a- ambitious to start with building uh, a driving facility, the race course and, uh, and the facilities that go with it, uh, but eventually expanding to something much bigger uh, to have multiple courses, to have a hotel, uh, to have some, uh, some condominiums even in this area. So this project is going through an environmental review. It's called Badlands Motorsports. So joining us to talk a bit more about this process, what's envisioned, and to address some of the concerns that have been raised about the impact of this, very are pleased to welcome to the program uh, James uh, Zalazo, who is CEO of, uh, rather CFO of uh, Badlands Motorsports. James, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
16: Hello, yes, I'm here.
1: Appreciate you joining us here today. First of all, clarify for us where this proposal is because it is near the community of Rosebud. I think the land itself is technically in Knee Hill County, though, and and that's important for who makes the decisions on this.
16: Yes, it is in Neehill County. It's on the border of Wheatland County, which where Rosebud is in that county in Wheatland. Uh, the project, uh, the project site is approximately uh, five kilometers uh, southeast of Rosebud. It's not in Rosebud. It's not that near to Rosebud, even though that seems to be uh, the focus of it. <clears throat> right. It's actually closest uh, uh, area for communication which, uh, is, is uh, of course, Drumheller. And that's where the support services and the various interests and mostly comes from with respect to uh, the the advantages for their right community. Once uh, the road, whether the significant part of the project is to upgrade the road system from uh, a gravel road to uh, a, paved, uh, a paved highway, two-lane highway to get to it, which is part of the project, which is also a fairly expensive part of the project. Uh, but once that is done, it's a, just a quick drive from about 25 minutes to Drumheller, which will be the most uh, convenient access point. Okay. Uh, Rosebud, in effect, is not that close to it uh, as what you know, we may believe. Uh, it is um, to actually to uh, get to it, to drive to it, of course, on the existing road systems, which are not that good. still about 10 to 12 kilometers away. So it isn't the nearness is what uh, what is sort of portrayed. Um, that's the location. The location from Calgary, of course, is the important one, which is uh, the most convenient one would be going out Highway 9 past. Uh, uh, but there's various different routes, but Highway 9 to Drumheller and before. There's a route. <clears throat> there's an area uh, called uh, Horseshoe Canyon. Okay. Uh, on the way to um, drumheller well at that point just there is where we you would go south to our our uh, our site which is fairly remote uh from and there's really not very much around it so it's it's a we thought and think it's a an ideal site for uh something that's very uh, you know in the river valleys and the rivers and we have a river running through it and so it adds an awful lot to to our project and the scenery that's we will have uh for the development for any of the residential is there
1: uh, so knee hill county has given approval to to this absolutely and guess, we've had right? and the bylaws so,
16: passed quite some time ago actually back as far as 2014 Okay. The area structure plan has been bylaw approved, and the re- the zoning for it. So that's all been completed, and uh, there we've also completed the environmental assessment. Has been done. It's not in approval. It's been completed. What is in process now is just the appeal, which is very customary on all these environmental projects that do involve. Uh, wetlands, and we do have that aspect of it, and the environmental significance, there's a lot of uh, lot of uh, work required to comply with all the regulations and rules that have, that are required, and that's basically what we've completed, and we're approved. We're actually in a position to start construction. There's nothing stopping us from doing that other than raising the necessary funding at this stage, even though appeal is in process it's not for the project the project's been approved it's just for this water act approval okay. which is uh, the portion is regarding the storm water management thing to which is the environmental impact on the river itself and those 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 have been completed they're not there's there, there's it's not a public hearing it's not what uh, normally you take in getting the approvals done, those have been completed.
1: So when you say you're ready to begin construction, is it possible then that that, that could begin this year? Yeah.
16: Absolutely. It yeah. could happen tomorrow if we have all the funds in place. We just don't want to start. We we have to have a sufficient amount of funds to make, make sure the road is completed, which is a fairly expensive start our first phase. So uh, the, um, the the regulations basically... That we've required to pass have been done, so we're not restricted by really anything. The the possibility on the hearings with respect to the appeal board uh, is potential of that there could be a condition. Maybe we might have to revise something, but there, it's very clear. To make it clear, this uh, a process is uh, is not an approval. It's The approval's been done. It's the appeal of the approval by the ministers to the minister, to the uh, director of environment.
1: In terms of the economic impact you believe this will have, um, you know, to to have something like this in the area, obviously there's gonna be a lot of jobs on, on the construction side and then on the operations side. How significant do you expect that to be?
16: Very significant, especially in our climate today. And the total uh, support and the, the government's mandate right now is for di- uh, eco- economic diversification. And tourism is one area that has the most potential for expansion, too. And there is a, definitely a, could be our number, actually eventually our number two economic driver, uh, number three now, I believe it is. And I think our area for the east side of Calgary or the east side of the province is definitely primed for this type of thing. There's all a lot of interest in it from the area of Badlands, uh, the groups, the associations, the Badlands organization itself, and all the communities have shown very strong support for this development. Uh, and um, it will provide many jobs. Uh, the operations especially as it expands uh this is a this plan is to complete to have a completely self contained community uh and uh, re, but it's a resort and it's not intended to be a municipality as such but uh it would be a, a, a fully contained i mean as it grows we'll have a, a, a its own sewage disposal systems etc but it will take it's not going to happen immediately. The nucleus, of course, is the road, road courses, and that is the, the desire to get that going first. And it actually, the it can actually function independently, and it'll be just by depending on the demands of developing the other parts of it. The the, the significance of it is that the constru- the comprehensive site development plan for all the structures that we have planned have been approved. In other words, Mm -hmm. these are all the land use uh, part of the the bylaw has been passed. It's a direct control district where it sort of moves along, so all these things. And so that was a very extensive uh, feature of getting to this point where going through the processes, the area structure plan, and all of the uh, information is all public. It, you can review it on the websites of uh, Nehill County, of, of the project, and um, that's where we are. I said jobs is definitely a very big, uh, uh, not only the jobs in directly in the area, but also the the outlying areas and the interest that uh, it will create uh, to draw to the to the area it's we're billing this as almost the gateway to the badlands because there it'll bring an awful lot of people to the to the to the area that will there also like to explore the other areas of yeah. the badlands and so these are the support that we have from drum heller in particular and the mayor and the officials and the and the economic the um, the Chamber of Commerce there and those businesses are very keen on this project because there is definitely a big spin off to them.
1: Well, we'll let people know uh, they can read more about the project. The website is BadlandsMotorsportsResort.com, and uh, we'll keep following this, James. Appreciate the update, and uh, all the best with this. Appreciate it.
16: Okay. Thank you.
1: All right, take care. Uh, James uh, Zalazzo, Chief Financial Officer with Badlands Motorsports. So badlandmotorsportsresort.com is their website, and you can get a better understanding of what they're proposing to to build here. I mean, it looks pretty impressive, you know, the, the idea of it. Again, not everybody in the area is crazy about it. There's the concern about potential environmental impact and you know, being this close to the river. So that's what's being sorted out right now. And, uh, like I said, we'll keep an eye on on that process. All right. We'll take uh, another quick break here. Back to wrap things up on a Thursday afternoon, right after this. Welcome back. 403-974-8255. I'll get our text here. says, I couldn't care less about racing and we will never visit this proposed development. But there is so little economic development out there and little wildlife that I'm aware of that I think if they can get their immediate neighbors on board, I say, why not? Again, I mean... You're going to get differences of opinion with any kind of proposed project, especially one this big. Um, hill County, so this is in hill County, and, and so it's interesting because it, it is, well, and, and you know you heard the guests say, oh, it's not that close to Rosebud, but it is somewhat close to Rosebud. And so that, that falls within uh, Wheatland County, but this technically is in Hill County. So if you're in Wheatland County, you don't necessarily have any standing in nehill County proceedings. But if it's right up against the border from one county to another, then you get potentially those issues. So Nehill County has already uh, given approval to this. They've signed a development agreement, in fact, with, with the company. Uh, so because now it's, it's near the river, there's some environmental review, and this is uh, an appeal process. So the Environment uh, Appeals Board is, is looking at this so uh, there was a court ruling last year that that said they had to slow down the process allow more people to to basically be interveners and and have their say in, in these environmental hearings so that's where things stand is just to to ensure that everything's on the up and up with regard to the environmental impact but yeah th- this will certainly have some economic impact in in terms of uh, building this now I again, I don't know the economics of all of this. I, I, I know there's not a lot available in terms of motorsports racing in Southern Alberta. There's a couple of uh, tracks near Edmonton. There's a, an oval uh, just near Watasquin, and there's also one uh, closer to Edmonton. I think it's the Castrol Raceway, I believe it's called. There's not a lot in Southern Alberta. So there, there may be some demand either to use this track or just to, for people to get out and watch racing events. So the um, the long-term vision for this is pretty ambitious a $500 million project, multiple racetracks, a hotel, and even condominiums. So you'd have some people who actually live out there. So they eventually want to build a big racing community in every sense, a world-class automotive road course, a full-service recreational resort, and a residential community. They expect up to 280 vehicles on site during weekdays, that number swelling to 400 on weekends. So they want to have two courses operating 12 hours a day, 200 days a year. 200 seems optimistic, honestly, in Alberta, but maybe uh, 15 to 20 cars on track at any time, and they expect to employ between 100 and 200 staff. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's jobs associated with building this, jobs associated with running this, and, you know, obviously economic development matters, not at all costs, obviously, but uh, this seems like something something doable. We'll see if these environmental concerns can can get laid out. So uh, at least the, the you know, what they've got in terms of mock up and the whole backdrop of the badlands, yeah, it looks pretty impressive. You know, it's a pretty scenic place to have a, a road course going through. So I get the idea. I mean, again, I don't live near this, so it's it's easier for me to sit back and say, What's everyone so worried about? So I, I get that there are people who feel that they're gonna be impacted by this or the potential environmental impacts of this, so That's what this whole process exists for. Uh, Someone else points out that uh, Three Hills is uh, already home to the street freaks uh, show and shine. Thousands come uh, every year, so that culture's already there. Another one says, if you can't get a project as benign and economically attractive as a racetrack approved, you might as well forget about doing any kind of development in Alberta. Yeah and and look again I mean you know if if it's if it's near the the river if it's going to potentially have some impact in that sense you got to go through the process but um yeah it's a fair point i mean if you say no to that then what kind of a message does that send right Anyway, uh, that's pretty much going to do it for us here this afternoon. Don't forget, uh, three, just after 3 o'clock, I think around 3.15 is what we're hearing, uh, Finance Minister Travis Taves is going to be presenting the budget in the Alberta legislature. And uh, we will be speaking with Travis Taves on the program tomorrow. I think we got him slotted in for 11 o'clock tomorrow uh, to talk about this budget. We're expecting a deficit around $14 billion. We're not expecting new taxes, probably not expecting any significant spending cuts. But that's gonna be the dilemma for the province here and the expectation that in some areas you spend now, other areas maybe there's room to uh, to be a little more modest. But um, I don't think we're expecting any huge surprises in that sense. I think a lot of this has already been mostly telegraphed by the province. The question going forward though is, you know, when do we get around to having those conversations about some serious and fundamental changes to how government operates and how money is spent and how much money is spent? And the other interesting question is going to be, what about oil prices, right? There's some some bullish uh, optimism out there when it comes to oil prices, maybe even talking of $100 a barrel by later this year. I don't know how 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 smart it would be for the government to table its budget with $100 a barrel as their own forecast. But, you know, it just it shows how difficult it is to peg the price of oil going forward, which is a difficult game at the best of times. So that's going to be an interesting one to keep an eye on this afternoon. So like I said, plenty to get to on the budget tomorrow. Travis Taves and many others weighing in and certainly an opportunity for you to have your say as well. So plenty of budget coverage coming up tomorrow. On the program. Just to want to take a quick uh, quick second here in our uh, final moments, say big thanks to our Hero of the Month for the month of February, Wade Kozak of the Kozak Financial Group, CIBC Wood Gundy, big believers in giving back to the community and big supporters of the Calgary Children's Foundation. And we thank them for that and honor them as our Hero of the Month for the month of February, Wade Kozak, Kozak Financial Group, CIBC Wood Gundy. All right, Angela Cocott is uh, in, waiting in the wings and uh, will take over after the 12.30 news. My name is Rob Breckenridge, back with you tomorrow at 9.30. Talk to you then.